Well, welcome back to Entrust, gentlemen. Time flies. And uh, here we find ourselves once again diving in to Entrust. Well, next week we'll do sort of a, I'm going to circle back. I, I want to kind of wet our palate this morning with um, the bulk of what we're going to cover in Entrust this, this season. Um, and then next week we'll circle back and I want to just do a little reminder study of uh, from scripture, what and trust is, what we're doing, why it exists, um, all that good stuff. Um, but in the meantime, <clears throat> we'll open our reading and open our study this morning. I'll make a few comments about what's, uh, what we're hoping to occupy ourselves with, get excited about in uh, this year's Entrust. And if you've never been to Entrust before, welcome. Great to have you all. Um, great to have uh, you guys online as well. Good to see you all. And um, we'll chit-chat about what's going to happen. But as an opening reading to what's going to happen, Mark chapter 14, towards the end of the chapter. And this is, of course, just before the crucifixion of our Lord. And he's being falsely accused. We'll start in verse 53. And I'll read down through about 65. Then they led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and scribes gathered together, and Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were seeking to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimonies against him, but their testimony was not consistent. And some standing up were giving false testimony against him, saying, We ourselves heard him say, I'll destroy this sanctuary made with hands, and in three days I'll build up and I'll build another made without hands. And not even in this way was their testimony consistent. And the high priest stood up in their midst and questioned Jesus, saying, You answer nothing? What are these men testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and said to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming to the clouds of heaven. And tearing his tunics, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy? How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, Prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. Let's pray. Father, to read such words reminds us how Utterly unworthy we are uh, of the life, the death, the grace, the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ. How radically unworthy and undeserving we are of grace. And what the Lord Jesus endured for us on the cross and before the cross. Lord, so this morning as we, we launch another season as brothers, this wonderful fraternal we have here, arms linked, shoulder to shoulder, 
Lord, humbled by your grace to launch another year, we, we just pause and, and just declare how unworthy we are and how blessed we are, those of us who have received the Lord Jesus by faith. Thank you, Lord. And as we look into your words here, this prophecy, everybody will see you sitting at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Seemingly such blasphemy to the unregenerate, the satanic high priests, lost, blind. Lord, these words will prove true. Everybody will see you come back. You will come back. You'll bring your glory, your kingdom, and do so many amazing things. Things that perhaps at this time with the throes of life and work and battling the curse seem almost too much to handle. But Father, I pray you would, by your Holy Spirit, open our eyes, strengthen us in your word this season to be encouraged by things yet to come surrounding the return of the Lord Jesus. Thank you for these men who have sacrificed, who have got up early, Lord, denied themselves. I pray you would make us better off every Thursday throughout this season of entrust, not because we're worthy, but because you're merciful, glorious. Strengthen us by your word. Thank you for this food. Thank you for all the men who helped set up. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, gentlemen. So, if you're not already aware, uh, welcome, by the way. Good to see you guys. Uh, if you're not already aware, we're going to be getting into, uh, as your notebooks say there, eschatology for entrust. Entrust exists um, sort of as a, an attempt, albeit in a perfect one, to follow the instruction that the Lord gives us in 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, uh, where Paul commands the church, commands Timothy and the churches thereafter to entrust biblical doctrine and trust these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Um, we'll, we'll talk more about that again next week. As I mentioned, I want to dig in and just kind of do a, a, a recalibration of what entrust is, why it exists, what we're trying to do here. Um, typically, each season of entrust, we, we major on a, a particular topic. Uh, last year, we did biblical masculinity. Spent the year on that. This year, we're going to do eschatology. If you're not familiar with what that means, um, eschatos is the Greek word for the end. So the study of the end times, end things. This is uh, Many of you have requested this, have asked that we do this, so we're circling back. We did this uh, a number of years ago, so we're going to circle back and dig in a little bit deeper perhaps and revisit some of these things that are essential. Um, there will be notes each week. Um, thank you for your grace, uh, even today, just with getting things dialed in for the year. Um, I will try to smooth that out. But again, eschatology, here we are. So, <clears throat> what is eschatology? Again, it is the study of the last things or the end times. I, th I think it's important as we... Uh, bring ourselves to the edge of this ocean of study and this vast sea of, uh, of biblical doctrine that we realize this is a topic 
about which stacks and stacks of books have been written. Uh, if I could steal John's words, I suppose if we said everything there was to say about eschatology, not Jesus' miracles from John 21, not even the whole world could hold all the books that would be necessary. Uh, th- this isn't a uh, this isn't a side issue, by the way. Uh, let me say that oftentimes, for various reasons in the Christian church, eschatology has been considered sort of a peripheral issue. Well, you've heard people say, I'm a pan-millennialist. We'll just see how it pans out, things like that. Um, these are side issues. These are uh, tertiary matters. And uh, I would beg to differ. And I think Scripture would as well. I think Jesus would as well. Uh, that this is uh, a, a critical issue. Um, we also would do well to, to observe that there is disagreement among um, those who are Orthodox, not Orthodox, capital O, like uh, the Eastern Church, for example, but th- those within sound biblical doctrine, there are very there are different views. We'll look at some of those views um, and it show which appears to be, at least from the elders' point of view, uh, the view that ought to be espoused from Scripture. And while doing so, reminding ourselves that those who disagree with us aren't necessarily outside the pale of orthodoxy. Okay? Um, So, when we look at eschatology, uh, We'll, we'll look at a chart. People like charts and eschatology. It's, it's good to have charts. Um, but we're, we're bringing in, we're bringing in, uh, a, a, a vast knowledge, attempting to, I'll say, right? None of us are inerrant. We're attempting to bring a vast biblical knowledge to understand end times and things concerning that. Um, the the only passage, let me say this, Revelation is not the only passage that deals with the end times. Okay, uh, It's one of the passages, and sometimes people say, well, Revelation, who can understand what's in that book? Um, again, I would want to encourage us, if that's been your view, maybe it hasn't, but if that has been your view, to, to steer away from that view. God gave his word. God gave his word to be understood. God gave his word not just to people with, you know, PhDs and THDs. Revelation, for example, was originally written to seven churches in the ancient world, churches that were being persecuted, people that didn't have washing machines or motorized vehicles and had to do life, didn't have refrigerators, didn't have indoor plumbing. And didn't have time to get, you know, a, a PhD in eschatology, and yet he expected them to know what was said in the book. He assumed when the Lord gave the book that it was clear enough, straightforward enough, through appropriate, consistent, sound hermeneutic, to be read, to be understood, and to be edified by it. And that would be true with all passages of the end times. So we'll approach it as such. Uh, we will apply. We'll talk more about this, but. Hermeneutics are critical in understanding and dealing with the end times. Um, we did hermeneutics. It's been a number of years, but we've done hermeneutics in, in, in trust. We also have done hermeneutics probably about a year ago in one of our Sunday schools, Sunday mornings, 
um, before the gathering. Hermeneutics means, if you're unfamiliar, how to properly study the Bible. Um, and we will assume that there is a consistent hermeneutic throughout Scripture, the grammatical historical hermeneutic. Grammatical, historical, um, exegetical, which is to say when we approach a passage, we look at, we look at the context, we look at the grammar, we look at the history, uh, we look at the original language of the passage, uh, what would have been understood by the, uh, the, the, the original recipients of a letter? What was the authorial intent? of the passage, not what does it mean to me, but what does it mean? What was the author's intent of a particular passage, which is what it means, what's what it means to God? We're looking at what what do passages mean to God um, as we look at these passages that tell us about the end times. It's been said that maybe a quarter to a third of Scripture is prophetic, a quarter to a third. So that's not a peripheral issue. Right? That's not a side insignificant issue. Um, so in looking at these passages, doing our best, which logic and scripture would have us do, apply a consistent hermeneutic throughout, we will attempt to do our best to discern these passages that concern us with the end times. I think you'll be encouraged. Um, so this morning, I want to give just a quick overview of eschatology. Uh, what what is the many things that will happen, not everything. And additionally, talk about oh, 11 or so reasons why we should study eschatology and why every Christian needs to know eschatology. Whether you're a mom duking it out at home with kids, a dad duking it out in a Genesis 3 thorn and thistle world, something in between, single, new in the faith, older, you've been saved 100 years, whatever it might be, why every believer needs to, to buckle down at some point and, and understand the importance of eschatology. Okay? So, in the notes there, here's a simple, it's abbreviated way to understand the end times. Um, I'll attempt to redraw it up here, but I'm, I'm no drawer. I'm no artist. So if I insult your intelligence, apologize ahead of time. So we have our present age, okay, the church age right now, after the cross and the resurrection. We're in the age of the church. Probably the first thing to happen, number one is the rapture. This is the resurrection. This was the rapture. After the rapture, we have, again, look at your notes. The diagram is much better. This is more for the guys who maybe are uh, tuning in online and uh, don't have the notes. After that, we have, so I'm giving like a quick overview, and then we're going to spend the whole year studying what I'm giving you in just a couple minutes here. Um, we have... Probably immediately after the rapture, what's called the Bema, or the judgment seat of Christ. Bema seat. 2 Corinthians 5.10. Other passages. This is the believer's 
judgment. Not a judgment. Yeah, these, these are in your notes. It should be. Um, th- this is not a judgment to see who goes to heaven and who does not. This is the believer's judgment. This is a judgment where you are evaluated and rewarded on how you conducted life, your faithfulness to God as a believer. There will be loss and gain of rewards. We'll talk, we'll talk more about that. The judgment seat of Christ. I, I, there's a few passages quoted by each of these events in your notes. These are not the only passages. <laughs> Just a couple, yeah. Okay. Uh, then we have the number three. We have the the seven year tribulation, also called Jacob's troubles. Jacob's troubles, also called the seventieth week. We'll refer more to it as the seventieth week of Daniel. Daniel is kind of like the revelation of the Old Testament. Very important book to understand. Um, then, at the end of the seven-year tribulation, the return of Christ, what Jesus was talking about in Mark chapter 14, 16, 61, our theme verse for the year. Second coming of Christ. And then we have kind of five and six. We have the restoration of Israel. A literal Israel, as the scriptures teach, and the millennial kingdom. Millennial as in a thousand years. Thousand year reign of Jesus Christ, Psalm chapter 1, excuse me, Psalm chapter 2, Psalm chapter 110. Many, many prophets, minor and major prophets, uh, and especially, of course, What's the big millennial kingdom passage in the New Testament? Revelation 20, 1 through 6. Okay. Plus or minus. Then, at that time, number 7, you have uh, the judgment of the dead or the lost. And this is where unspeakably tragic, sorrowful, sobering time where those who refuse the love of Jesus Christ in this life will be justly condemned and thrown into the lake of fire. And then Revelation 21 and 22, what we call the eternal state. Eternal state. Literal Material kingdom, material existence, uh, not pie in the sky with harps, like, like, like a planet walking around, rivers, mountains, animals, humans, you, food, etc., etc. But the eternal state, as things were meant to be originally, restored and way beyond restoration. Okay, Genesis 1 to 2, Revelation 21 to 22. Uh, Originally, we were, mankind was immortal. God created a material kingdom, as he's always intended. The material, the, the kingdom is always material, physical, geographical, circumscribed, stuff, dirt, water, 
air, animals. That's, that's more of what we should think about when we think of heaven. And a little Revelation 20 in between. Of course, Israel restored. That's a big topic. Sorry, here. Big, big, big issue. Um, that That's the issue, probably that and the Millennial Kingdom are the issues around which there's probably the most debate. And we'll do our best uh, to look at these views. Um, we will look at, so when we're looking at Millennial views, what are some of the, the names of the, 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 the more popular views? This view, what's that? Oh, sorry, I wasn't, but you can you can fire off and say Sam. This view, what's this view usually called? Premillennialism. Millennialism. Okay, and using this hermeneutic, consistent interpretation of the Bible throughout, logical, natural reading of Scripture, authorial intent, grammatical, historical. Even those who do not espouse premillennialism would agree that that view will result from a consistent, straightforward hermeneutic. There's also what's called amillennialism. Millennialism. And many of our friends in the faith hold to that view. There's postmillennial. This one's become more popular these days, not coincidentally. We'll talk about one reason why that view has become more popular, what that view is. Um, it's this used to not be super popular. Now it's become really popular these days. So we'll chit chat about why. Uh, there's other stuff, but we'll we're going to just address these. Focusing, of course, we're not going to spend tons of time talking about what's wrong with these views. So much as looking at in Scripture why premillennialism seems to be the biblical view of eschatology. Along the way, we might we might observe, hey, so and so. Amel, post-mill typically looks, holds to this. Here's why. Here's, here's where they differ. Okay, All of these would hold to a literal return, a bodily return of Jesus Christ. Heaven, eternal state, stuff like that. Okay? Any brief questions? No. Good question. Now, the question was, are these the same as pre-tribulational, post-tribulational? <clears throat> no. no. Good question. No, that has to do with the timing of, of the rapture. Pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, whatever trip. Yeah, that's the, the, when this thing called the rapture will occur. Those, those views would be kind of subcategories of premillennialism. Okay. Any other brief questions? John, what do you got? Eric, I was just wondering if there's any um, anything related to the timing on all this. I mean, is this like a thousand years? Yeah, good. Fifty years? Any idea? Excellent question. The question was, what's the timing of all this? So <clears throat> I'm glad I'm glad you would care to even ask that. So this was the cross, the resurrection that happened. The church age is right now since since the cross. The church was born in Acts two. Here we are, the church, right? The age of the Gentiles, God's grace poured out upon non-Israelites with the unfathomable riches of the Messiah showered upon us that by faith alone and Christ alone, 
We can have a righteousness with God and that being eternal. We don't know the timing from here to here, the rapture. However, the tribulation is seven years. And we're closer to it than we've ever been, obviously. Whenever the rapture occurs, there will be seven years of unprecedented upheaval on earth. We'll look at that. We'll look at that in great detail. Okay, unprecedented. Um, And we will argue that some of our friends who disagree with us eschatologically will say that the tribulation is now. Uh, We'll show why that really cannot be now. Um, Amillennialism, some, I don't want to say all. When I I say a view, if I don't say it, I mean some, not all. There are offshoots. Believes that Revelation 20 um, is now, is happening now. And that at the end of Revelation 19, the return of Christ, that that is yet to come. It kind of look, switches it. I'm getting off a little bit, but off topic here. So, church age, we don't know how long, but it's been 2,000 years, right? Right, John? Rapture, seven years. That's pretty quick, but it'll be a long seven years. Jesus returns, and then a 1,000 years of Christ as the president of the globe. Better, better yet, the king of the earth. For a thousand years, there will be not an uh, oligarchy, not a communism, socialism, capitalism, democracy. It'll be a theocracy for a thousand years with Jesus. Jesus is, is the ruling king of the earth. Correct. In actual Jerusalem, geographical Israel. Um, and then the judgment of the lost happens here. There's a big war here. This is in Revelation 28, 9, and then the eternal state where God's people are with the Lord forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And that's so eternal, right? Forever. Okay, so a thousand plus seven plus question mark. Plus or minus. Okay? Other brief questions? Well, also the tribulation argument that we're seeing now, that means the, the judgment of believers are now. Correct. Yeah, good, Tyler. Um, this is Revelation. Yeah, if the judgment, yeah, if, if tribulation is now, then many things have happened. The timing seems to be off in Scripture. The tribulation is discussed among other places, Daniel 9, 24 to 27, and Revelation 6 through 19. T- Revelation is... You know, Revelation 1, introduction, Revelation 2 and 3, the message to the churches, Revelation 4 and 5, what's happening in heaven right now, Revelation 6 to 19, the tribulation, Revelation 20, the millennial kingdom, Revelation 21, 22, the eternal state. It's not that it's easy to understand necessarily, but it is clear. We do hold to the perspicuity of Scripture. Perspicuity, that is, Scripture is meant to be understood. And if right now this seems like a big tangled ball of spaghetti to you, uh, I think if you would hang in there this year, it'll become quite clear. Okay, Essential stuff, gentlemen.
Not, not a side issue. And what's essential also is one of our, so we have a, pre, a few presuppositions when we, when we approach eschatology. Number one, we've already talked about it. Um, the, the perspicuity of scripture, that's one presupposition. I would encourage you to hold these tight to know these. The perspicuity of scripture, pre, presuppositions. Number two, an eschatological view must be demonstrated from Scripture. Okay, assuming, we already looked at it, a grammatical, historical hermeneutic. Know these, please. It's essential to know these. Write them down, memorize them, whatever you have to do. Okay? I'm not making this up. This is kind of common. Scripture is perspicuous, clear, meant to be understood. An eschatological view must be demonstrated from Scripture. If we're going to hold an eschatological view, it is essential that we demonstrate it from Scripture with a grammatical, historical, hermeneutic. Okay, authorial intent. What did the author mean to write here? Which author? Yes, the divine and the human. Okay, if you're wondering where, where do we get that, how do we understand that, go grab our hermeneutic study. It should be online and revisit that. Okay, these are our presuppositions. Obviously, I should put zero, um, that, that Scripture is the Word of God and it's inerrant. I, sh- I shouldn't assume Shouldn't assume that, okay? All right, questions about that? So number one, zero should be the Scripture is the Word of God, it's inerrant. Then the perspicuity, perspicuity of Scripture. Next, eschatology must be demonstrated from Scripture. If you're going to have a view, it's catastrophically irresponsible to walk around with a view and just say, well, this is my view, as happens often these days, and it's quite puzzling in the Church of Jesus Christ and the Church of God, uh, you have to be able to demonstrate your view from Scripture because Scripture is the Word of God, and Scripture is the authority on all matters pertaining to life and godliness. It's okay to say, I don't know what I believe yet. That's fine. That's great. There are many passages that I don't understand and I don't know. You know, we'll look at some of them. But when it comes to eschatology or theology proper or Christology, homardiology, soteriology, anthropology, our view must be demonstrated from Scripture because Scripture is God's Word. Okay? Using a, consist, a consistent hermeneutic, the kind of hermeneutic that Scripture is espouse, grammatical, historical hermeneutic. Okay, better to say, I don't know what I believe about eschatology yet than espouse a view that cannot be demonstrably justified from Scripture and that accurately and appropriately so. Bye. Okay, so why study eschatology? Sorry, any other questions about that? Eric, can you hear me on this thing? What's that? Is there a microphone on that TV? Someone's chiming in online. Yeah, can you hear me? 
Can you hear me? Yeah, Brother Derek. Morning. Oh, cool. All right. So question about timeline. Um, during the rapture, is Christ going to be visible to the world? Great question. Is Christ visible to the world during the, the rapture of the church? Um, and, and my understanding of scripture, no. Nope. He will not be. Yep. And we'll look at passages that talk about why and why not. The only, the time that Christ will be visible to the world, there are two times. Okay. Mark 14. 60 to 61 when he returns. Also, uh, this is discussed in the passage. It's called the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. All the world will see him, right? Christ told the chief priests, everybody's going to see me in the clouds. And if you're not the Christ, you're not the Messiah, and you're not coming back, you should be shut away, your mouth duct taped, no one ever paying attention to you, reading anything you have to say forever. If you say that, and that's not true. If you say what Jesus said, it's at the bottom of your, your front page on your notebook there. If you say Mark 14, 60 to 61 and 62, and that's not true of you, then no one should ever listen to you again or pay attention to anything. No one should, especially no one should say patronizing things like, well, he was a good moral teacher. He he has some helpful morals. What are you kidding me? I'd rather listen to a, a, a rat discourse about his morals than a guy who says that, and if it's not true of him, if he's lying. Get that guy out of here forever, because that, that, that is a terribly unloving, blasphemous thing to say if that's not true of you. But it is true of him. Every eye will see him. You can count on it. Your, your friend who mocks the Christian faith, who thinks Jesus was some fairy tale, like little Bo Peep tending her sheep, but not quite as real. That guy, Anton LaVey's, dead presidents, alive presidents, everybody between, will stand face to face with Jesus Christ. And at that time, nothing will matter but that, but what you did with Jesus. Nothing. Why should we study eschatology? So that we can win arguments with our amill or post-mill friends? No. Though I would say it's healthy to discuss these things and to learn how to do so chari- charitably and to learn how to glorify God with our minds and with his word. Everybody has presuppositions they bring when you discuss a particular issue, whether it's political, biblical, eschatological, sociological, harmoniological, whatever. You bring in a, a package deal that fuels it. We need to discuss and not say, well, let's agree to disagree. That's not real. I mean, that's let's go to Scripture and see what it says. Number one. 11, 12 reasons here. The urgency in the pursuit of holiness, that's why we should study eschatology. It pushes us to pursue godliness. There with eschatology, there is a big gentleman. So what? 
So what about all this? About the 70th week of Daniel and details of the millennial kingdom. The rapture, the tribulation. Big so what's. And we miss out on these if, if we gloss over them. The pursuit of holiness. Just a couple of scriptures. I won't read all of these, but these are here. By the way, we have, we will, we will receive along the way great help from, um, some of my alma mater, Master Seminary, the Expositor Seminary, Dr. Matt Waymeyer, others in these notes and other resources I'll point you to. Uh, this is not me as an island just pulling out these things. This is a body of knowledge from early the early days of the church to now and so on. But I want to publicly thank Matt Waymeyer for his help uh, with these notes. Second Peter 3, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, Peter talking about the earth, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? That's a so what right there. Since this is coming, what sort of people ought we to be in holiness and godliness? And notice there's a participial phrase, verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we're looking for a new, for new heavens and a new earth, Revelation 21 and 22, in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. What a so what right there. That's a so what. Since God is going to incinerate this present earth, that that needs to mean something in the present. 2 Corinthians 5.9 in your notes there. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ right here. And the we there is critical. Always ask, what's the we in a particular passage? It's antecedent to the we. So that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad, speaking to believers. Okay? Um, 1 John 2, 28. Now, little children, abide in him or remain in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. 1 John 3, beloved, now we are children of God and it's not appeared as yet what we will be. In other words, right now we can't really see what we will be in the future. (coughs) We know that when he appears, we'll be like him because we'll see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Eschatology always has an ethical imperative. Every scripture has an ethical imperative, and especially eschatology. And whenever you read an eschatological passage in scripture, you don't have to look far to see an ethical imperative. Number two, joy and trials. Why study eschatology? Joy and trials. Anybody need joy and trials? You have trials. If you live for more than five minutes, you'll have trials. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, 
to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. In other words, your future. Your future. You, speaking of verse 5, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And this you greatly rejoice even now, even though now for a little while, if, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Eschatology is a, a weapon you need in your war chest to have joy in trials. Anybody need joy in trials? Study eschatology. You want more joy in the hard stuff of life? Dig into eschatology, especially premillennial eschatology. Number three, patience in affliction. Like me, do you struggle and you need patience in affliction? Study eschatology. By the way, these are biblical, biblically uh, suggested, more than suggested, given ethical imperatives of eschatology. James 5, therefore be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Right? Be patient. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brothers, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. That's a helpful so what? Perseverance and persecution. A fourth ethical imperative of eschatology is perseverance and persecution. Second Thessalonians 1, we ought to always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you indeed are suffering. For after all, it's only just for God. This, by the way, this is a passage uh, which, from which we understand the, that hell is eternal. It's just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Notice the gospel is an issue of obedience. This isn't, what would you like to believe one religion among many other legitimate religions? That's never the view that Jesus espoused. It's the gospel, bowing the knee in faith to Jesus is an issue of obedience. To mark, no thank you, on the RSVP is to defy God. It's an act of utter defiance. It's not, no, I prefer another religion. Oh, well, that's great. Well, we're all, we're all religious. No, you're, you're condemned. You've defied the creator of the universe. And it says plainly here, verse 8, these, excuse me, verse 9, these who, th- those who don't, do not obey the gospel, they'll pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all those who believe. Our testimony to you was believed. 
Number five, zeal. Zeal and devotion to discipleship. Discipleship, following the Lord, help coming alongside others, to one another's life together as brothers. Zeal. Anyone need more zeal? Does life drain your zeal? Live long enough and it will. Hebrews 10.24, let us consider how to stimulate. The Greek word there means provoke. It means like a it's kind of a little bit of an irritation in order to get one moving in the faith towards a good end. Spur. Used of spurring an animal to get it moving. Let us consider how to spur, provoke, stimulate one another to love and good deeds. What does that look like? Verse 25, participial. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but of encouraging one another and all the more, as you see, the day. The day. Which day? The day. The day. Drawing near. Scripture, you often see this, the day of the Lord, or the day. Sometimes it's package deal. Sometimes it might be referring to the particular day the Lord Jesus' feet land back on the Mount of Olives. They will. Zechariah 14 tells us. Until you see the end drawing near. All the more gather. Isn't that interesting? All the more gather, verse 25. All the more encourage. All the more stimulate. Encourage each other. Keep going, brothers. All the more do this. All the more let's watch out. We don't get distracted by bunny trails in life. It's so easy to if you're a sinner like me. Eschatology, just keeping that in view helps us like, you know, we're, we're kind of like oh, on the path, I, at least I am, <laughs> struggling, you know. Looking at eschatology helps us to keep going towards this end, right? We might, we might be a little swirly left and right, up and down, but by the grace of God, keeping our eyes on the Lord, eschatology helps us to keep going collectively. What do you mean collectively? Good, Phil. Yes. Very good. Collectively keep going. Not collectively hide myself Listen to MacArthur sermons at home and pat myself on the back for nothing. But collectively keep going. Because it's hard and we all struggle and we're all full of sin. Faithfulness and service. That's a number six. A sixth so what? A sixth. How does this getting up at six and being here at 6 a.m. to study eschatology, what good is this going to do me? Faithfulness to God, faithfulness and service to God. We want to be faithful to Him. Every believer wants to be faithful to his God, to the Lord, and it's hard to. Matthew 24, after Jesus gives all that data in the Olivet Discourse about the end times, he starts telling these parables one after the other. He starts just firing them off. Be ready, be faithful, be on the alert. Be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming, verse 42. But be sure of this parable. If the head of the house had known at what time the night, what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would have not allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready. See the commands there. Be on the alert. You must be ready for the Son of Man, Jesus' self-titled from Daniel, is coming at an hour which you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? 
Blessed is the slave whom his master finds doing so when, not if, when he comes. Jesus believed in his own literal bodily return. And so again to say, well, he was a good teacher, like Gandhi and Siddhartha Gautama, you know, and uh, whoever else. That's just blasphemy. How patronizing. What a shameful thing. He believed he's coming back. He believed his feet were going to, he's going to come out of the clouds, cumulus, nimbus, whatever, and land east of the old city up on the Mount of Olives. Either, as C.S. Lewis said, either that guy needs to be carefully paid attention to or just shut away forever. Nothing in between. Carefully paid attention to by meaning surrendered to, by joyful, happy, knee-bowing faith, as we all struggle. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of the household to give him his food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds doing so when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave sends his heart, my master isn't coming for a long time, and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards and the the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him in an hour which he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place of the hypocrites and that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell. In other words, and then the parable of the talents, not like a talent show you had at school where, you know, look, I can eat a jar of peanut butter in 30 seconds that you did when you were in second grade back in the day and mom came and applauded you. But talents, that's a, like a delineation of money in the ancient times. Parable of the talents, a very important parable. Matthew twenty five fourteen. For it's just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and trusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents. To another two, to another one, each according to his own ability. Each according to his own ability. You have been entrusted with a stewardship. We have been. What is your ability? What has the Lord Jesus entrusted to you as he's away on a long journey? Immediately, the one who had received the five went and traded. If I'm not mistaken, a talent in ancient times was about 10 years salary. The average, you know, blue collar kind of salary. Uh, probably something like, you know, a, a million dollars. Plus or minus. Okay, decent amount. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he received the one talent and went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money, his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five to me. See, I've gained five more. His master said, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. That was just a few. Right? Five times ten, fifty years salary was just a few things. You're faithful with a few things, I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. That's what end time stuff is to be thought of. Entering into the joy of our master. Twenty two, also the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two to me. See, I've gained two more. His master said, Well done, good and faithful slave. Notice he gets the same accolades. Same praise as the one who had five. Because it was according to his ability that he was entrusted with 
whatever it was. This, of course, represents our our natural skills, spiritual gifts, uh, resources, abilities, the, the providences the Lord endows us with, etc. One also, excuse me. Uh, he said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Verse 24, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid, and I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, what yeah, what's yours. But his master answers and said to him, you wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he who will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out that worthless slave into the outer darkness, and that place shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That That is not a believer who just loses reward. That's someone who goes to hell because they didn't serve the Lord Jesus with what he had given them. Two believers, previous two, unbeliever, the last one. So this motivates us to faithfulness and service. Number seven, so what of eschatology? Hope in a world of corruption. By the way, we'll, we do end here at 7 o'clock uh, each day, Lord willing. So, Hope in a world of corruption. Is not this world corrupt? I mean, locally, nationally, globally, is, there not, is corruption not as common as dirt? Uh, I mean, and filthier than it. It is everywhere. And eschatology, everything moving to this, gives us hope. Our own flesh is corrupt as well. Corruption is not just outside of us. It's also inside of us. Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation awaits eagerly for the revealing <clears throat> Of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Second Corinthians 4.16, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction, Paul calls it momentary and light, what he went through, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Far beyond comparison. Oh, we look not at the things which are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Comfort and grief. Comfort in a season of grief. Uh, this passage, First S 4.13, comes to us. This is the rapture. He says, verse 13, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Good so what's about eschatology there. And notice how he ends the passage, verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these things. Comfort one another with eschatology. Eschatology is a weapon in your war chest with which we ought to comfort one another. Let's keep on. Let's keep on, guys. The Lord's going to return. He'll be king of the whole earth. Theocracy. And then the eternal state will happen. What will this be like? Scripture has a lot to say about it. Randy Alcorn wrote a good book about this part. Maybe a little bit of it. He uses a little bit of creative license, but his book, Heaven, 
It's like 400 pages. Read it at some point. I would encourage you to. Or give it to someone who's dying and can't do much but sit there. Amazement, number nine, at the wisdom of God. Amazement at the wisdom of God. Paul ends that excellent section of Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again for from him and through him and to whom are all things to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Romans 9 through 11, a glorious section, especially Romans 11. End time stuff. Paul ends it just, God, you're amazing. You are incredible. Talking about the restoration of Israel, that God has not forgotten Israel. They're hardened for a time. But the faithful Israelite back in the day who heard the passages about wolves and lambs chilling out together, little kids playing unattended by a viper hole, the nations coming to Israel, The nation forever having peace, no one hassling them again. They longed for that, to see that with their eyes. That's how they understood those things. Paul ends that section just, wow, God's amazement. God is amazing. And that's, we're out of time, gentlemen. Thank you for your time. Thank you for being here, for your sacrifice to get up. I hope and pray that this year will be encouraging to all of us. We'll look at the rest of the imperatives next week. Dig into 2 Timothy 2 a little bit, circle back, and probably spend the remainder of our time on this. Father, thank you for your word. We, we need your grace every day, every second, every hour. Give these brothers here extra grace today in the battles they're facing. May eschatology and your words strengthen us, Father, to face the day and to do so with grace, with joy. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.